0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Everyday Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Green. This week we are continuing our discussion with Joe Wells from last week. We're talking about his book, Game Plan, Develop a Spiritually Winning Strategy for Adults and Teens in Today's Culture. Again, uh, this is just an outstanding, outstanding book, in my opinion. Really delves into, in great detail, uh, the history of what's been going on in our country and agendas that are at play, etc., but, anyways, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, make sure you back up and listen to part one, as this is part two of my discussion with Joe Wells. Moving on to your chapter three, and just want to mention briefly, uh, you, you call this chapter the the crack in foundation in the foundation, and uh, you got a quote at the beginning from Chris Martin, who is the lead singer of the band Coldplay. He says, "As a kid, you don't know any better, but then as you go on, the cracks begin to appear, and you're like." I'm not sure about this hell thing, and I'm not sure whether it's really wrong to be gay, and I'm not sure whether we're right and they're wrong. That's really the mentality of a lot of folks these days, isn't it? Absolutely, man. Um, Satan works in
1: sly, sly ways. Um, His goal, obviously, at the end is to to take as many people with him uh, to hell to, to hurt God. He doesn't love people. He doesn't love souls. He wants to hurt God. You are a pawn. We are all pawns in his game, right? And so when you really start looking at the way he works, it's much like a door. The way that it opens is you put a crack in that door and then you open it just a little more and then just a little more and then just a little more. And all of a sudden the door's wide open. Well, a crack in a foundation is that way too. If It starts small and then it grows and grows and grows and grows. And so The crack, the the seed that is sown is of I'm just not sure. This is what my parents have been telling me all these years, but I'm hearing all these other teachings that contradict what my parents have said. All these these stars in Hollywood or my favorite music artist, you know, they're taking other views, and I really respect them when it comes to their movies, and I really like them when it comes to their music and And so that's when those seeds of cracking in the foundation occur. Um, It's that our kids have a lot of noise going on today. And as parents and as grandparents and as ministers, we've got to understand something that we're a part of what they hear. We are not all that they hear. And that's why as parents, I, I encourage people, you really do need to limit what your kids hear especially at a very young age. But I would even offer this at their second highest rate of brain motability, which the first one is zero to six years. The second is in their teenage years. It's like concrete that hasn't set up yet. And you and I both know if you've ever poured a concrete patio or concrete in any way, you know that as it is setting up, you can put a handprint in it and that handprint will solidify. You can draw a picture with a stick in concrete that hasn't set up and when it solidifies, it's there. The only way to get rid of it is to tear up the concrete, right? Ultimately, or you can try to patch it. Right. But either way, the idea is this. The reason that quote by Chris Martin was so powerful is because it demonstrates the way that the, the doubting works. Your child, my child, my children, um, if they're going to wake up and not be sure about the things that the Bible teaches, it's not because they're going to wake up one day and just overly refute and refuse what they've been taught. This is a process that happens in their life over time. And so a teenager who says, I don't believe what you believe anymore, dad, it didn't just start when he became a teenager. He started having doubts many, many years ago, and chances are the parents were not engaged enough to even know that those doubts were there.
0: Oh, man, and that's scary. It is very scary. Because you think about how busy so many of us are. And it's so easy to not have time to ingrain and instill in our children what they need instilled. And the the sad thing is the, the media, they're doing their job. Absolutely. And uh, secular humanism that they're coming across in various places It's doing its job. Mm -hmm. But if we fail to do our job, that gives just the absolute tremendous advantage to those other agendas.
1: Absolutely. And it's sad that most parents are not, and I say this, I don't want this to come across as beating up on parents. I believe that parents truly want their children to go to heaven. I believe that Christian parents truly want their kids to go to heaven. But the reality is you taking them to services, you bringing them to the church building, You making sure they're involved in youth activities does not uh, offset all those agendas. It it gives them something else to consider, but if that's all that they're getting, then they're starving for the discussion, for the deeply ingraining the word of God in their life that needs to be taking place at home. And um, it's sad to me when I really think about that is that the culture is not taking a a day off, And, uh, and we're seeing results of that, you know, in the Lord's church as far as When I travel around, and I haven't really determined, I haven't decided where I'm at on this one yet. So please understand as I say this on your podcast, but we're seeing a huge gap in young people in congregations across the country. I cannot tell you how many people are in the same boat, how many congregations are in the same boat where they'll say, We have a slew of young children, but then we have a gap or we have very few older teens or you know, freshman in high school and above. And and I understand, you know, birth rates and I haven't looked closely enough at birth rates. You know, did the millennial generation, um, they obviously, did they not have as many children as the baby boomer generation? Did we see a decrease in birth rates? And now we're seeing an increase in birth rates of millennials who are now raising those younger children. Um, And so I've got to study that out. But one thing is certain, and there was a good book written on this, I'll plug it, Uh, because I do believe it at least needs to be considered. It's a book called Already Gone. Mm -hmm. Um, It was produced by the folks who do Answers in Genesis, Mm -hmm. uh, the Answers in Genesis people. And what they discovered was that most young people who end up leaving their religious upbringing, they already began leaving that religious upbringing like in fifth, sixth, seventh grade. So when they became ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th graders, they were sitting in the pew, but they were already gone. Right. And uh, that's why to me, as I, you know, looked at working with young people, working with families, I tried to always ingrain a couple concepts. And one of those concepts was uh, I dealt with apologetics very heavily, especially with young people. I dealt with the deity of Jesus, the authenticity of Jesus and the credibility of the Bible. And the reason I did is because those are some foundational elements to the development of faith of young people. Right. And if those are ever undercut by our culture, then if the child can't trust that the Bible's inspired and authoritative, then of course the secular humanistic views are going to be easy to seep in. And if I begin doubting whether Jesus was truly not just a historical person but truly the Son of God, well, then all of a sudden I start doubting whether or not I need forgiveness. Right. You know, and if I can't answer the question that science is bringing up regarding evolution and evolutionary theory. Then I'm gonna have issues with hey the earth was created uh, you know God created everything somewhere around six to ten thousand years ago and um, it, there's an explanation you know did Adam have a belly button well I can give you an answer and how did the Grand Canyon get here and what am I gonna say when they tell me that everything is millions of years old and you know what about dinosaurs and and I know that may sound cheesy that that matters at such an early age but it doesn't because it's all about before you build the walls of a house, you have to have a solid foundation. And that's why this chapter is so significant is because if there is a crack that can be occurring in the foundation, then the house that is built upon the foundation is going to
0: be shaky. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's one of the most, you know, just from the the aspect of thinking about houses, if your foundation is off, then the whole house is, is going to fall apart. Um, you, you mentioned, and you introduced us to a, a man by the name of Derek in this mm-hmm. chapter. And you had a conversation with him. And you described him as the youth group all-star. And then, several years later, you come to find out that he is one of the main organizers of an LGB rally. And back then, it was just LGB. Yeah, we didn't have as many alphabet right. letters. Right, right. The well, time. it's progressed you know, so much. Uh, and I think your book, here game plan is 10 or 12 years old right or something like mm-hmm. that and i guess you're going to need a sequel aren't you <laughs> because oh yeah it's got to have, have an update on it things have progressed so much i know just it's, in 10 years but anyways you've got this youth group all-star and just a few years later he's in college and he's an lgb rally organizer can you kind of just briefly describe that conversation with derek yeah um
1: derek was one of these young people he wasn't in the youth program as far as his parents weren't members at the congregation where I was working. But Derek was one of these guys that he was, a. technically his parents were members at a neighboring congregation that we always went to Bible camp with and we always did teen activities with and things like that. So Derek was in and out of my Bible classes on a regular basis. And when he would show up, um, he would always have his Bible. He was always asking really good questions. He was always turning in his Bible to uh, scripture, to volunteer to read it, which if you've worked with young people at any point in time, to get a kid to bring their Bible and actually use their Bible in Bible class is like a big deal. You know, it, it shouldn't be, but it is. Right. Um, but if we had youth-led services, you know, Derek was one that was going to jump up and, and take an active role in that. Um, and so from all, from all, you know, looks and appearances, this kid was going to be, a powerhouse moving forward for the Lord's church. And it shocked me when I saw on Facebook or one of the social media outlets, um, I saw that when he'd gone to college that he had obviously fallen in with a group that was uh, very much so involved with advancing uh, the homosexual community's agenda. And of course, this happened because there was a university who had a, a rule, a university where he attended, that any of the professors could not share their sexual orientation, especially if it was, of, you know, they were homosexuals. And it's because it had a religious foundation to, to the school. Well, the women's soccer coach, I believe it was, ended up telling a bunch of students, or it came out somehow, of, uh, that she was homosexual. And so that's what started the issue. The university then had to deal with that coach from a disciplinary perspective. Well, the students who were pro, you know, pro-homosexual agenda, they didn't like that. And so when I saw that Derek was on the front line of that, it really got me going, how did that happen? And so I reached out to Derek and asked if he'd be willing to come on my show um, back back then. And we had a discussion and the discussion was going to be more of an interview of how did this happen? You know, how did, what changed in your life? And he, he brought out a couple things that really did make an impact to me. And number one, it goes back to what I just said. If if we undercut the foundation of one's views, if we undercut the credibility of the Bible, the deity of Jesus, the uh, the reality of refuting science, uh, or I say not necessarily refuting science, but accurately representing science, uh, being that God is the author of science, True science, um, then if Satan can undercut any of that, then there's a problem. And so what happened was he went into a class in college where the professor taught him that the Bible was no more inspired than Shakespeare's writings
0: were inspired. This was a quote unquote in college. college huh?
1: Well, it was it was a denominationally affiliated school, right. but yeah, I mean that's where that was. So this the Bible is is no more inspired than Shakespeare. Therefore, since the Bible isn't trustworthy, the God of the Bible isn't trustworthy, and there's no need for a savior because the only place you find the concept of sin is within the Bible. And so then when God is removed from the throne, the Bible is removed as authority, that's where secular humanism steps into play. And for Derek in his life, that's what happened. And when that happened, the door was opened to communities that were very accepting. And, you know, one of the things that I tell people today is that young people are attracted oftentimes to the LGBTQ community uh, is because they are accepting. Um, that's one of the things I hear over and over again is they, they, they want you there. They love people. And of course, I've got other concepts within that that maybe we can go into in time that I'm still researching and studying. But the reality is Derek was drawn into that. And so, yeah, you you if Satan can cause a crack in the foundation, then anything that comes out of that will reflect that crack. And that's exactly what happened in Derek's life. Right. And, and Derek's just one example of many that are just like him. He is. And it's sad because when challenged on logic, when challenged on, you know, even the concept I would bring about of, of a, a box having a You know a hat in it. I'd ask, well, how did the hat get there? And you know, what if I just what if I just put pieces of the hat together and tape the box up and just leave it there? If I come back in twenty five years, does it make sense that that hat is going to be assembled? Well, Derek, at the end of the day, was not arguing the point. He was arguing a closed system, and he was arguing things that he really believed helped his cause. That if you take that hat, if you take the tape off of the box and don't make it a closed system, just leave the box open then he could see how eventually the hat could put itself together. I mean, you think about the absence of logic in the conclusions that are being taught to our young people in the world of academia. Uh, And that's why I'll I'll, I'll tell you this. I don't mind saying it now. One of the things that I, as I continue to study this, if America is going to be revamped or get back to anything, if Christian homes are going to get back to what we need to be, the world of academia is going to have to be addressed.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Speaking of agendas. Yeah, yeah. And we're especially talking about the higher echelons of academia. I'm talking about university, college. Right. And, and not all colleges and
1: universities are bad. Obviously, I represent one. Right. But it is one of those things that uh,
0: the majority of the universities are not teaching a biblical worldview. Right. I'll just say that. Absolutely. And I've got a couple of quotes I'll share with us in, in just a minute that, that show that. Uh, you bring up a great question page 29 of your book, and this is Pontius Pilate's question, so we want to turn in Scripture now and look at John chapter 18. John 18, verses 36 through 38, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate asked Jesus a simple question, but this is a question that is so important. He asked this question, what is truth? And I, I can't help but read between the lines and think that the way that Pilate was responding here more than likely was kind of a sarcastic what is truth? Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of people approach the idea of truth these days.
1: Absolutely. Truth is so subjective in our culture today. Um, you know, I tell people there's a difference between objective truth and subjective truth. And when you just say the idea of truth, if you're not careful, you'll, you'll be talking past people. Do you believe in truth? Well, yes, I believe in truth. Um, but there's a different, there are different kinds of truth. And I know that sounds weird. There are uh, there's objective truth and there's subjective truth. And objective truth is um, is not based upon you. It is outside of you. It is based upon what is. In other words, if I say the sun exists, and someone else says the sun doesn't exist, and I'm talking about the giant ball of gas in the sky, well, whether the sun exists or not is not based upon what I think or what I feel. It's, it's merely, a, it either exists or it doesn't exist. It's outside of us. Subjective truth, though, is based internally. It is based upon thoughts. It is based upon feelings. If anybody ever asks, um, what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? Those are all subjective questions. And um, that's why two people can go see the same movie at the exact same time and one person come out and say, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. And the other person come out and say, that was the best movie I've ever seen. It's because it's totally based upon subjectivity. Opinion. Opinion. Right. What the majority of people who discuss truth in our culture today, they discuss it from a subjective nature. And that's why what Pilot, when he asked, and I would agree with you, I don't think Pilot was being uh, authentic in wanting to know what truth was. I think he already knew, right? He was the guy who... Was going to wash his, he washed his hands. I find nothing wrong with this guy, and his right. wife said, "Hey, if I were you, I wouldn't do anything." But Pilate was a very weak man. He didn't want to deal with the Jews, right? right. Um, but the idea was this: even in in the answer to that, and in that time with Jesus, and in our time today, truth is oftentimes totally based upon subjectivity. That's why something can be true for one person but not true for another. We call that moral relativism or moral truth, right? And uh, of course, that's what, again, going back to agendas, that concept has been shaped over time. There there was a time where, uh, and you can even see it on some of the government buildings that we have, such as the Supreme Court, where the Ten Commandments are etched in stone, you know, on the outside of that building, that God's word was was more of a standard of truth in our culture. And over time, what happened was we got further and further away from that. And that's one of the things that I outline in that book from the, the pre-modern period to the modern period to the post-modern period. And now some today are saying we're in what's called the post-post-modern period. I'm not sure if that's the case in the day and age of critical race theory or critical theory. It's all rooted ultimately in a post-modern concept of philosophy. Um, but either way, the idea was this. In the pre-modern period, it was like God was driving the car and man was in the back seat. And in the modern period, uh, God was still driving the car, but man got into the front seat. And in the post-modern period, man is sitting behind the driver's wheel the and God's not even in the car. Uh, that really is the progression, or I should say digression, of the way that the word of God has been seen as the objective standard of truth in our in our country. And, and of course, you even think about it in the manners of people who didn't like it when the Pledge of Allegiance was said or standing for the National Anthem, um, individuals who didn't like it when school systems used to read from God's word. And so we've got all these agendas and lawsuits that have been put forth, uh, oftentimes by the ACLU to try to remove such practices, even from our schools, much less from anything else. I mean, we've got individuals today that don't like the fact that the word creator is in our constitution. Um, They believe that that violates a concept, which is called separation of church and state, which don't even get me started on that one. Not in the constitution. No, no. Well, it's not even, it, it, it was, what was it, Jefferson with the Danbury Baptist Association. And the idea with the separation of church and state was not that the government, uh, governing authorities have a right to suppress one's religious views. What Jefferson was saying was the government has no authority to get involved in your religious views whatsoever. Right. It, so the separation of church and state wasn't let's suppress religion. The separation of church and state was the government shouldn't even be involved in those discussions. We're not going to
0: sponsor religion. Yeah.
1: I mean, you go back and read the Danbury Baptist Association's letters with Jefferson. Right. And you'll find that, no, it wasn't in the Constitution
0: and that it was not saying what most people today say it says. So think about this. Uh, They're pitching a fit about creator being in the Constitution and basically their ideas. That's not constitutional. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense, right? The word that's in the Constitution, in their mind, is not constitutional, right. and it so makes that's no, no sense whatsoever. Yeah,
1: and so that's just a continual attack on this idea of truth. Right. And I say all that to say our society has continued to veer from a standard of truth, even today, where we can have a Supreme Court justice nominee be asked what is a woman, and she can't define what a woman is because she says well, I'm, not I'm a biologist. Yeah. Right. But yet the reason she was put forth as a Supreme Court nominee was because
0: she was a woman. Joe, what, what's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Right? I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not not a, a culinary a, artist. I yeah, can't tell not you. A chef. Yeah. yeah, I can't tell you what a peanut butter and jelly <laughs> sandwich is. It's just insane. It, it, it floors me how crazy we and how far we've come. Uh, you mentioned subjectivity and objectivity. Um, some things, yeah. What, what flavor of Kool-Aid do you like? Sure. Subjective. No big deal. But there are some things that are objective that you cannot force to be subjective. You cannot force a round peg into a square hole without making some major modification of the peg. And then you're, you know, in the metaphor, you're, you're doing some shady things to try to fit your agenda, If you know, in that metaphor. Can you imagine, though, a culture, and this is really, I think, what's going on, using the
1: square peg in a round hole? Can you imagine a culture that theorizes that you can do it? Never has to do it, just theorizes that it can be done and then bases principles and standards on the theory that it could be done. Yep. That's where America is. Oh, yeah. We're, we're talking about individuals who are born biological males But yet if they want to identify as biological females, then we're supposed to treat them that way. We're talking about a denial that God exists because of a thought, a theory, not a law of evolution, but a theory of evolution. We theorize about things and then our culture accepts the theory and then we base principles and even uh, court rulings not on can the square peg go in the round hole really let's just try to put it through and see if it fits. Mm-hmm. That's an objective concept. We base rulings and beliefs and theories on uh, philosophies yep you know and that's, that's what's abstract. right which is why it's like trying to nail jello to a wall right The jello will always fall off the nail. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what Satan is doing in our culture today which is why it
0: makes it so much more difficult for parents and grandparents. It's it's the uh, philosophical version of the theological thought of, well, that's just your interpretation.
1: Yeah, and how many times do we hear that? All the
0: time. Yeah.
1: and Or we'll, we'll agree to disagree. Right, right. Okay. Well, the Bible says this. Yeah, we might get an agree to disagree on a lot of things, but whether or not I like what the Bible says, it does not hinge, the, the, the view of the Bible, the view of God, the teaching of God doesn't hinge
0: on whether or not I like it. Right, absolutely. You know? Yep. Uh, you mentioned pre-modern, and you've got in in the book that's basically creation to roughly the seventeen hundreds, mm-hmm. and then you've got modern, that's seventeen hundreds ish to nineteen sixties ish, uh, and modern the modern period is basically modernism. Which correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the idea that you know uh, these it kind of started in places like Germany and France, and uh, these high thought people, <laughs> these philosophers. Mm-hmm. They basically started attacking the inspiration of the scriptures. Uh, they said, "Well, no, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Pentateuch. Uh, Jesus was a good man, but he was not the Son of God. He, uh, miracles, no—that those things didn't happen. These were the thought processes of the modernist. And then, what's the natural progression from modernism? It's the postmodernism after modernism. What's postmodernism? 1960s, roughly to present time. It's Anything goes. Right. Right? Well, that's it. You remove God from the throne of authority. You remove the standard. Then you're there. Absolutely. Anything goes. And Mm so I talk about postmodernism a lot. I try to mention it from the pulpit quite a bit. That's what our kids are being taught these days. Here's your truth. And, you know, here's my truth. And we can both be happy. That's not, that's going to get a whole lot of people in a world of hurt on the Day of Judgment because, well, they, they thought they were good. They sold sure. the things that they believed were fine, but they turned out to be lies. Yeah, well, and that's that's sowing chaos is what
1: that's sowing ultimately. I don't know any other any other realm of, uh, of uh, or any other discipline that functions that way, right? So you go to a doctor. The doctor takes blood work. The doctor reads your vitals. Um, it, it comes back with a, "Hey, your white blood cell count is up. This is where your pain is." and he or she will read all of those signs, right? And then they will potentially refer back to writings that are in journals regarding these particular ailments, these particular signs, and then maybe they're going to meet with a body of doctors to discuss it. And then they're going to come back with, this is where we are, you know? And then we're going to develop a course of action based upon where we are. I don't know... You know, a medical field that looks at all that evidence and says, well, I know the evidence says you have high blood pressure, but I don't really think you have high blood pressure. I know the evidence says that you have diabetes. I just don't feel like you have diabetes. Right. You know, can you imagine if the medical profession operated in the same way that philosophy does in which they're now trying to and have had tremendous success to make religious thought be that way? is you, you have your opinion, I have mine, and we're both equal in our opinions. It's like, I would never go to a doctor that would... And, and I understand, right, we have second opinions. We, we get second opinions. But ultimately, those are based upon facts. Right. They're not based upon feelings. You yeah. know, it's this is what your chart says. And the reason is because that doctor knows what's at risk. Mm-hmm. If that doctor just goes off of thoughts and feelings, then what's going to be potentially the consequences is going to be death or a misdiagnosis and a mistreatment, which medicines can kill you too. Yeah. If the disease doesn't, the treatment can. Right. And so that doctor doesn't want that because then that doctor is held accountable, could lose their license, could be sued. You know, there's so much at stake. I believe some of this in America with our empty philosophy and with our, at times, empty religious thinking With your opinion, we're just going to agree to disagree. It's looked at that way because we really don't believe there's a consequence. The biggest consequence that most philosophers and those advancing this agenda think of is, in our culture today, the way it's talked about is, well, you're going to live in this life in an unfair way. Not what's going to happen in eternity to you. Right. And so, you know, I just can't can't think of another discipline that would function well in the same way that philosophy and religion functions, Um, but thus the nature of philosophy and religion. Somebody's going to hear this and go, Joe, that's what philosophy is supposed to do. And I get what you're saying. Don't get me wrong. I just, I hate at times
0: that philosophy and religion are lumped into the same category. Right. Absolutely. Um, We talked about higher levels of academia earlier. I want to bring in some stats from page 44 your book: 23.4% uh, of college professors claim to be atheists or agnostics. I bet that's higher now. 19.6% uh, claim that they believe in a higher power, but not a personal god. 4.4% claim to believe in God of some of, uh, in God some of the time, but not at others. So I guess they're back and forth on it. They're not mm-hmm. sure. 16.9% of college professors claim they have many doubts, but they do believe in God. of college professors believe the Bible is the actual word of God. 51.6% of college professors believe the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts. In other words, subjective. Uh, 33.9% of college professors claim they are not religious. 75.1% of college professors said that religion does not belong in public schools and that public schools should not be allowed to start each day with a public prayer. And 84.1% of college professors disagreed that intelligent design is a serious scientific alternative to the Darwinian theory of evolution. Page uh, 45 and 46, I've got a, you've got several quotes here, I want to read just a couple of them. Professor Michael um, Barube, I guess, a professor of English at uh, Penn State University, this is a quote that he said, in the class, we talk about what it means to be an anti-foundationalist. That is, one of those sane, secular people, sane, secular people, so what does he mean by religious people? Crazy people is what he's calling uh, religious people without saying the word, who believe that it's best to operate as if our moral, moral and epistemological principles derive not from divine will, God, uh, or uniform moral law, but from ordinary social practices. What is he saying there? He's saying that whatever socially acceptable is moral. Yeah,
1: and that's exactly where, where he's coming from, is whatever works best in society, uh, that dictates uh, what it should be done, which
0: means when society changes, so do the rules. Right, so the majority of society in 1930s and 40s Germany were in favor, at least, or at least they didn't do anything about it, of exterminating Jews. Does that make it okay? Well, absolutely. Based possible. on his argument, it would have to, though. Based on his op- argument, that's exactly the logic. Yeah. And of course, that is appalling. It's wicked, but that's the logic that people are using today. Sure. Which, unfortunately, we're we are using that logic
1: when it comes to so many different things, as far as uh, entertainment. When it comes to concepts regarding uh cohabitation versus marriage having children out of wedlock uh what was once seen as bad is no longer seen that way because
0: society has changed oh yeah oh yeah uh professor steven weinberg on page 46 physics and astronomy department in the university of texas oh yeah the south (laughs) uh this is in the south too folks this is not just in uh, the west and in the northeast this is all over the place I think in many respects, religion is a dream, a beautiful dream often, often a nightmare. But it's a dream from which I think it's about time we awoke. Just as a child learns about the tooth fairy and is incited by that to leave a tooth under the pillow, and you're glad that the child believes in the tooth fairy, but eventually you want the child to grow up. And there's a whole other discussion we could get into there. We're not going to. I have my uh, thoughts about that, but... um, they're they're basically saying, look, God, the concept of God is just like the Tooth Fairy or some of these other figures of the imagination that that kids are into, yeah. and they use that to attack the faith of college kids. Yeah, well, and they, what's interesting is
1: that any more in the, in a lot of the writings that I have read or researched, if you if you believe in God and you are a religious person, you are seen as weak. You are seen as somebody who needs a crutch because the difficulties of life, you're not able to handle them on your own. You need an explanation for them. And so individuals who already start off with the fundamental disbelief in God, they're gonna have a negative view of people who choose to have a view of God Um, and choose to be religious, but in all things, it is looked at as you're weak, and of course, that's where this quote comes from is, um, you know, we need to grow up. That's what he's basically saying. Our society needs to grow up, and of course, it's being rooted, and here's what I've also learned is if you're the one making the statement, you can control the boundaries of the logic and of the argument. He didn't ask for proof in the Tooth Fairy versus proof in God, he, didn't, he just equated them. He's just um, uh, throwing an accusation. Correct. And which if no one is able to refute the accusation, then the accusation stands. He wins. Which is what happens oftentimes in college classrooms. Yeah. The professor makes an accusation, makes a claim, and students are so busy taking notes to get ready for that test that most of them are not willing to risk their grade, much less
0: um, any any other ramifications to stand up and refute that teacher. And as much as we wish it were the case that like the, uh, the denominational faith-based movie, God's not dead as as much as we wish that 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 would happen. That's rarely, if ever actually
1: happening. And I've heard it too. And you may have as well. Hey, just swallow it. Just take the test. Just give them the answer they want and just move on.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, that's fine. I say, that's fine. I know what you mean by that. And I know what I meant by that if I've ever done that, because I have, but the idea behind it is what about the people who are listening in that class who may not have the same foundation you have?
0: Right. They and they're being
1: it. swayed right. by that
0: religious illogical argument. Yeah. And they, they swallow it hook line and sing. Yeah. It, so. That's
1: why I wish I knew. I wish I knew back when I was in college what I know now. It's not that I know everything, but I know enough now at least to challenge some things. Such as if my teacher were in, were to give me a test after they had just taught me that truth was relative, I would ask, how dare you give me a test and then grade me on a test when you've just taught me that truth is relative? I'm just going to turn in a blank piece of paper to you mm-hmm. and then challenge you to give me a zero because what you do when you give me that grade is you're grading it by an objective standard. Yeah. And you're telling me in your grading system that truth is not relative.
0: Right. But I'm telling you, I'm doing exactly what you just spent the entire semester teaching me to do. And, uh, okay, my truth is that this paper gets me a 100. That's right. And... A professor that is honest with his teachings would have to give you the hundred. They would have to. And if they don't, then they don't really believe what they've taught you. Amen. That's exactly right. So that's why I would not do well in college today. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Hey, you you get along with my dad. He liked to play with those professors and stuff like that, too. All right. We're going to go ahead and pause the episode there for this week. Lord willing, next week, we will be back with the end of our discussion with Joe Wells on the book Game Plan. And uh, also, it'll be the end of our season. Lord willing, next week, the last episode of this current season of the Everyday Christian Podcast. So, tune in next week. What's up, guys? It's Caleb and Michael over here from the Scattered Abroad Network, and we just wanted to say thanks so much for listening to this episode. Yeah,
1: we're so thankful to the East Hill Church of Christ for overseeing this network, and we're grateful to God for this opportunity. And don't forget, you can check out our show notes below for all of our social media links, email address, website, and We have a monthly newsletter, so don't forget to sign up for that. Please remember to leave us a rating or a review on whatever platform it is that you use. And please continue to keep our network in your prayers.
0: As always, thank you again so much for listening. Be ready tomorrow. We have brand new content coming out here on the SAN. Thanks so much, and God bless.